you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, I trust you're having a great week and a week full of work that is, in fact, meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Speaking of profitable, we're going to really dig into that today. It's not often that I do a theme podcast. Usually it is answering the tons and tons of questions that just roll in. I love doing that. Look forward every week to unpacking that email file with the questions that you all submit. Today we're going to do a little diversion. Today I'm going to be interviewing Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Now, if you've been listening any time at all, you probably recognize that there's probably no single resource I reference more than Rabbi Lappin's book, Thou Shall Prosper. I send people back to that again and again and again. I've given away tons of copies of that because it's so foundational to our understanding about success, how we handle money, how we view money. If you think money is evil, guess what? It's probably not going to show up. If you think that you have to somehow connive and manipulate and take advantage of people to get rich, and then you're going to turn the switch and give back, that's a distorted view of how money works. If you think there's a fixed amount of money and we're just going to redistribute it by taking from the rich and giving to the poor, that's a novice view of money. Money is not a fixed quantity. We create money. Well, we're going to get right into talking to Rabbi Lappin about this and more. Here's my interview with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Well, it's my pleasure today to have my longtime friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on the line with us. He has a new resource coming out called The Ten Commandments to Achieve Financial Prosperity. He has another resource that you've heard me reference time and time and time again on this podcast, the book, Thou Shall Prosper. There's probably not another resource that I've referenced more singularly than that book, Thou Shall Prosper. So we have the pleasure of having Rabbi Lappin on, and we're going to discuss this whole concept of how we approach the idea of money, as well as the new resource, and we'll be giving you information as to how you can link to that new information as well. Rabbi Lappin, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Wonderful to be with you. I've really been looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And we've had the pleasure of connecting several times over the years. You came and spent some time with our little Eagles group that Dave Ramsey and I started years ago, and you were kind enough to give an endorsement on my latest book, Thou Shall Prosper. And Thou Shall Prosper, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't, maybe it's, maybe I want to have written that book. My latest book, Wisdom Meets Passion, rather, and I appreciate that. So we're going to talk. I've got some questions lined out here. I want you to tell us about your new resource, but I got some questions to kind of get us into the information. And one of those has to do with a question I know we asked you in that little Eagles group a couple years ago, and it's kind of the basic question, does God want us to be rich? Or are we just kidding ourselves by even being concerned about that part of our lives? <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's a tough one to answer, yes or no, of course. But the... Um but the, the the basic principle there is that uh, what I do know is that God wants each and every one of us to be um, obsessively preoccupied with filling one another's needs and desires. And uh, 
he's created a, an environment, he's created a, a world in which um, human economic interaction is rewarded by the number of people you know, the number of people who trust and like you, and the number of people eager to trade with you and do business with you. And, and that's really the, uh, the world in which we've been placed. It's a world uh, in which the, the acting in a way desired by God invariably has the impact of creating wealth. In other words, um, we know for sure that, uh, that Bill Gates has pleased millions of people. Now, notwithstanding the frustration that so many people have with Windows, <laughs> uh, regardless of that, the fact is that millions of people have purchased that software, not at the point of a gun, but voluntarily because it has improved their lives. And uh, to to lesser or greater extent for, for everyone else, the same is exactly true. And so uh, uh, the, the natural consequence of serving the needs of other people is wealth. So to that extent, does God want us to be wealthy? Well, he certainly wants us to, to attend to the needs of other people. And we shouldn't be surprised if the result uh, of that is the great blessing of financial prosperity. Wow, that, that's such a gentle way of presenting that. As you well know, in the Judeo-Christian world, we've had so many mixed views surrounding money from every extreme position you can imagine. Now, I was raised in the Amish Mennonite tradition, very closed, cloistered kind of culture, where the essence of our theology regarding money really was that you're better off without it. It's more godly probably to not have it because it's just too dangerous to be entrusted with the responsibility of it. That's a tough kind of thing to shake when it's not just an economic principle, but when it's a theological principle that's overlaid over your life. I'm sure you've encountered that a lot, where people have some kind of subtle rumbling of that theology that you're really better off. I mean, we really at some level believe that the root of all money, of all evil, is money. How do we miss that message? Look, it's not, uh, it's not restricted to, to, um, to the Amish or, or any particular religious group or denomination at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the, the broadest uh, beaming of that destructive message is through popular entertainment, where um, uh, it's hard to think of a villain in primetime television uh, or in any of the movies, you know, if you go back 30 years, go back to Boiler Room with Michael Douglas, uh, go back to the James Bond movies um, where Rupert Murdoch was the blueprint for the villain in um, yeah, Tomorrow, Tomorrow Never Dies, I think it was, with Jonathan Price. Uh, the villain is always a rich businessman, uh, somebody prosperous and successful, who's inevitably doing something horrible to the world, like wrecking the environment or something like that. Look, um, here's something I encourage people to try on my radio show and to call me in with their results, and uh, it astounds me. Uh, every time it's so predictable. I say, if you've got a child or a grandchild or a nephew or a niece in, in uh, elementary school, uh, I want you to paint them a picture, sit down with them and say, just I want you to imagine a very rich businessman. His office is on the top of a gleaming 
skyscraper from which you can look down at the world. And I want you to imagine, tell me what you think we would find if we opened the top right-hand drawer of his desk. What do you think some of the things we might find there? The majority of kids sit and think on that for a couple of moments, and the first thing they all come up with is a gun. Oh, my gosh. Because this scene is so common. You know, it's so prevalent where um, uh, the evil rich man is confronted by the heroic young um, uh, star who, uh, who charges him with, all, with doing all these horrible things to people or to the planet. And, if, and, and what he then does is he opens his top right-hand desk drawer and pulls out a gun. And then, you know, the cavalry come in through the door and save the day. But, um, but yes, they do believe that the majority of murders on, um, in real life are committed by, by successful business professionals. That's what they believe. Wow. Because that is, by the way, that is the demographic that commits most murders in public, uh, in, in popular entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yes, the bottom line is that no decent human being can excel uh, at, at any activity that deep down in his heart he considers to be morally reprehensible. Wow. Uh, there's just so much of, uh, um, there's so much belief that, that, and it's politics as well, not just this administration. It goes back decades that if you're uh, successful, you've got something you don't quite earn. That's why, you, that's why they call the noble process of putting your capital at risk on the rare occasions you actually make money doing that. They call it unearned income. <laughs> you don't really deserve that. Uh. I mean, this is pure Marxism. Um, or... You know what they say when they see a philanthropist giving a gift to the local hospital. Isn't it nice to see somebody giving back to society? I know your feelings about that term. And it's awful because it implies so clearly that while you're making the money in the first place, you're taking away from society. And the bottom line is that the only people who can make money with force is the government. Mm -hmm. But the rest of us, if we're not using a gun and we're not defrauding people... Uh, the only way we make money is by supplying other human beings with things they want more than the money they give us. Mm. Now, I have a follow-up question to that because it really goes to the core of what you just talked about. The, the, the idea, the premise is that money is a fixed quantity, that it really is just being redistributed. So if some dude has a whole lot of it, he obviously took some from a lot of other people. Yes, you, right. you so clearly talk about how money is generated rather than simply being redistributed. Can you give our listeners a little idea of how money is generated? Well, uh, yes. Look, first of all, that, uh, that, uh, that horrible mistake, which, which is responsible for so much poverty, um, is all based on the idea that money is a physical commodity, not a spiritual commodity. And that's a, it's a very important point. What I mean by that is that uh, it's a general rule of physics that any object can occupy only one point on the space-time continuum at any given instant, which is just a fancy way of saying that if uh, you know this particular book I'm touching sits on my desk right now, then it clearly isn't on yours. And if we transfer it to your desk, then I am now minus a book and you are plus the book, Right. Yes. That's pretty straightforward. But uh, spiritual things aren't like that. For instance, a tune is different from 
a violin or a saxophone. Musical instruments are physical, but a tune is spiritual. And uh, there's a tune with me right now, which I could whistle to you down the phone line, and uh, you'd now have the tune. I'm not in any way diminished by that tune. And so it, it, it's very clear that if money happens to be physical, then if you happen to have a whole bunch of it, then obviously there are a whole lot of us over here who are minus that amount. But if money is in fact spiritual, then its coming into being doesn't deprive anybody else of anything at all. And, uh, and so I, I, I spend considerable effort and time uh, making a compelling and convincing case in, in the program that uh, you've alluded to that we just come out with, um, making it absolutely clear in a way that not only enters people's intellect, their heads, but also their hearts, because that's really where this information has to reside. It has to really change your outlook and your position. That uh, making money is not taking money. Making money is not depriving anybody of anything, but making money is adding to society um, in, in, in a way that people don't get. general belief that... Um, just like the, the pirates of the Caribbean, the, the, not the Disney people, but uh, the real pirates who roamed the Caribbean in the 1600s, 1700s, uh, when they retired after a lifetime of profitable plundering, uh, what they generally did was build a uh, cathedral or a church for the local bishop, and there, thereby they sort of expiated their sins and atoned for all their uh, plunder, and were able to buy their way back into respectable society. Very often when I, I talk to, particularly to church groups, where, where I'm trying to help the church overcome, this particular church overcome, its, um, it's, it's sad and, and, and destructive attitudes towards money, I'll sometimes say, well, uh, you know, presumably you want to make more money, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to me right now, but I do want to ask you why. And almost everybody clearly feels that the only acceptable answer is so that I can give more away. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm certainly in favor of charity. I'm in favor of tithing. I'm in favor of giving money away. But that's absolutely nothing to do with what we're discussing. You do not have to give away in order to make up for having made it in the first place because in making it in the first place, you already did a service to society. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made any money. Oh. And so to that extent, money a testament. Money is a certificate that validates the fact that you have served some of God's other children. See, that's such an important point, especially for entrepreneurs, somebody who's going to have a business of their own, to understand that they are giving back from day one, hopefully. I mean, they certainly should be. If they aren't, then they shouldn't be in that business. But it's an opportunity to give all along the way. It's not a matter of accumulating and then out of guilt, feeling like you have to give something back. I mean, that's such a transformational change in how we tend to view money. I see people who go from being an employee to going into business for themselves and being surprised at how easily the money appears and then sabotaging that because they can't balance their own self of deserving, I guess, with the way the money is coming. That's right. And this is such a critical issue. Tell This would be a good place to just tell us a little bit more about the Ten Commandments to Achieve Financial Prosperity. And we're going to have links to this information readily available for everybody so they can just click on it and go right to it. Oh, I, great. 
I've already been in there digging around. I've watched a couple of the videos already. I'm fascinated. Tell us what the information is going to be and, and how it's going to be delivered, I think, is an important point as well. Yeah, it is actually. Um, it's, uh, it's at the website ancient, ancienthebrewwisdom.com. Ancienthebrewwisdom.com is where it's at. And, um, and, and you know, here, here is the point. I mean, imagine for the moment that uh, you were going to be um, visiting a, a dangerous city or a dangerous part of the world, and, uh, and you decided that you wanted to polish up your unarmed combat uh, techniques before you went so that you could take care of yourself. And uh, what you do is you, you go to uh, Barnes & Noble and you buy a book on, on self-defense. And uh, on the flight uh, to this um, dangerous location, you read the book. And you've got good retention. And so uh, by the time you arrive there, you've, you've actually absorbed all the information that is in the book. And now... Uh, you walk down a dark alley, and all of a sudden, uh, a metallic uh, object pokes you in the ribs, and an arm comes around from the back around your neck. And uh, you should be able to handle this just fine, because Chapter 11 deals with uh, sudden surprise attacks from the rear. So why can't you? And the answer is because none of us can truly apply information while it's only in the head got to be in the heart as well those last 18 inches from the head to the heart make all the difference and so simply absorbing the information in that book into your head did not prepare you to be able to deal with the attack you actually would have needed hours in a uh, in a studio with a self-defense master uh, drilling you attacking you from the front attacking you from the rear attacking you with a knife attacking you with a gun practice 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 and then when, uh, when, when an attack comes in reality, you would have been able to explode into intuitive reaction and, uh, and, and deliver like laser-like blows of retaliation that would have immediately rescued you from your predicament. Um, that's the problem with just reading books. It's, it's a problem that... It all makes sense, and we say, aha, and, and this is all the same, by the way, whether it's any area that in which you want to improve your life, uh, maybe it's dieting or, or exercise or uh, anything at all. Reading isn't quite the same. That is why we went to so much trouble to, to create a, a resource that would actually drill you, uh, would walk you through the process so that it's not just information in your head, but that it actually begins transform uh, the very being that you are because that is the only way to transform your destiny so it's going to be delivered via some videos be, uh, on the internet you will also be able to get um, uh, printed material by paper there will also be uh, an in-person conference there will, where we'll all get together and and, fight and Drive home finally everything we've learned. Uh, we'll be doing that in uh, Dallas in October, and um, uh, and then of course uh, through through video on the internet, with tele seminars. There, they're going to be. They're gonna, we're basically using every uh, modern and technological as well as ancient technique for making certain that whatever people's individual learning style. 
style is, we're going to be able to make it work. Ah, I love it. I have seen, being in the the self-help motivational success arena for many years now, we've seen how the popularity of the big events where you used to get everybody together for a day and everybody would come out, you know, high as a kite. And two weeks later, you realize nothing happened, nothing changed. We're seeing a lot more of a program that has some longevity to it, where there's more integration, more assimilation. And I love the way you're laying this out, where, yeah, I've watched the videos. I can go back and watch them again, so it's not a one-time thing. And then you keep trickling the information along. So over a period of time, and it takes that time for us to really change our, our hearts, as you say, it's easy to accumulate a lot of information very quickly. But, boy, getting at that 18 inches down to our heart where it really changes the way we're living our lives, that's a different thing. And I appreciate There's the way no other that way you're... To do it that. Oh, I appreciate the way that you are doing this. Well, again, by the time this goes live, everybody will have be able to go right to that access that information. Again, we'll have links to take them right there so it's easy just to flip right over, and we want them to take advantage of this amazing information. You know, this is, being the son of a pastor, this is kind of an exciting arena for me to be in because so often people see our faith as something that we exercise on the weekend, but then the rest of the week, well, that's just my work. But, you know, you're such a great example of that. And, of course, as a rabbi, you know, people sometimes are surprised to see you in the business arena. (laughs) And yet you see them so integrally woven together, there's really no separation. And I love that. You you are very comfortable in both arenas, obviously. But exceptionally, very much so. Well, yeah, and you, you see that, you know, what we're doing on Thursday morning is just as much an expression of our faith as what we're doing you know, on the Sabbath. That's right, of course. You know, there's a there's something that I've heard you talk about that really profoundly impacted me. Again, coming from this scarcity mentality that it perhaps is more godly to have nothing. There's a part of the Sabbath evening ceremony in which there is a cup placed, a goblet placed on top of a saucer, I'd like you to pick it up from there. I think that is such a beautiful visual picture of how we want this information to be integrated into our lives, where it blends our work and our money in a godly way. Can you ex- explain what that ceremony sure. is? Um, it's called the uh, Havdalah service, and, um, and uh, the Sabbath, which begins for us on sunset on Friday and ends with nightfall on Saturday night, uh, both begins and ends with a blessing over wine, which is sacramental in, in so many religions. And uh, and the the, the the final concluding ceremony, um, characteristically, is um, is is uh, observed over a full cup of wine that has actually run over. Um, whereas you know, at other times where a blessing is said over a, a, a cup of wine, for instance. You know, it's just a full cup of wine, but uh, at the end of the Sabbath, it's actually running over into the saucer. And the idea is that um, at the beginning, our week's work as we are, as the Sabbath ends, six days shalt thou labor and do all your work, and the seventh day you shall rest. Well, we've just finished the, the seventh day of rest. We're about to commence the six days of, of labor, which are just as godly and just as holy as the seventh day of rest. I mean, they're, they're, they are emphasized in the fourth commandment. 
so um, um, and so as that uh, that, that six day work week commences, uh, we we, uh, we observe it with a ceremony with an overflowing cup. And the idea there, of course, is that this week's work should be um, uh, should motivate us to to not only have enough to fill our cup, as it were, but to even have more than enough to fill our cup, let it run over, so that excess uh, beyond our own needs is what becomes available in, in various forms for society around us. Now, that, the, what you're talking about then means that I am giving from a full cup, not an empty cup. Again, so much of the Judeo-Christian theology is that it's more godly to have an empty cup, and yet... You know, I cannot give... Oh, you see, that's not part of Jewish theology at all. That's the interesting thing, and, and that's where I'm, I'm getting this from. Um, and I, look, I, I, I have encountered it among many, not all, but I found it among uh, many Christian churches where the, the notion that poverty equals virtue, and that somehow an empty cup testifies to, to how good a person you are. Absolutely. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. See, absolutely. You know, I cannot give what I don't have. And I often tell people, you know, the best way to help poor people is not to be one of them. I mean, it just seems so counterintuitive. And yet I see people going there time and time again. That's why I was so profoundly impacted by that having lost service ceremony where you pour wine into the cup, your own cup, until it's overflowing. and, And the overflow can then allow you to be blessed to be a blessing, as Scripture talks about. Now, I'm, I have so many questions. We could go forever, but i got just a couple more that I want to squeeze in here in the time that we have. One is this idea of being connected. You describe how a person's success is linked to how many people we know. Now, we often talk, and our, our mutual friend Michael Hyatt, his, in his program that he talks about platform, we talk about content is king, platform is queen, the queen rules the castle. You can have... I mean, you can have a lot of content, but if you're in isolation, nobody benefits. Now, in the same way, you could have a trillion dollars in a trunk if you're living on an island and nobody else is there. It really doesn't mean anything. It has no value in and of itself. Talk to us a little bit about that idea of if somebody is not an outgoing person, they're a little more introverted or shy, are they depriving themselves? Do they need to change their personality, or is there a principle that they can somehow use anyway? Well, uh, yeah, look, uh, as, as you correctly put it, um, one of the, the lessons that, um, that, that we learn uh, through the Cain-Abel story showing up so early in the first few chapters of Genesis um, is that you don't obtain wealth by eliminating other people. You obtain wealth by being involved with other people. That's one of the reasons that Cain demonstrates that he's learned his lesson by building a city, even though there are no people in the world yet to occupy the city. That's not the point. He's recognizing that wealth creation takes place in cities, not in empty areas. Um, and no one in his right senses uh, would say to, uh, you know, imagine a young person came to you for advice, Dan, as I'm sure happens all the time, and he says, look, you know, I want to start a jewelry store, and uh, I'm actually thinking of, of going to Death Valley because I've checked, and there's, there's not a jewelry store within <laughs> 300 miles of Death Valley. And I just, you know, this way I'm, I'm going to 
providing a service where none exists. I'm not going to have competition. That's going to be where I'm going to go. And you know, you're going to say to him, no, that's really not a good idea. I mean, you, know, you should really open a jewelry store in the area of 47th Street in Manhattan, New York, where all the other jewelry stores are. And if he's in the fight, he's not going to catch on. He's not going to recognize that is, that's the, it's that dense wrong of pushing, shoving humanity that is drawn to 47th Street because it's a jewelry headquarters of the world. And that's precisely the throng that is going to enrich him. And that being in a place where there are no people uh, is a handicap, not an asset. Um, so, yes, the, this is very much uh, a point. And, and, um, and, and the, the correlation between business success and size of Rolodex um, is, is a very real one. And, uh, and, and it's not just correlation, but it's causation as well. Clearly, the more people who know you and like you and trust you, the more people will do transactions with you, and transactions are what creates wealth. Uh, what about the person who uh, is introverted? And, um, and I've had many, many people listen to uh, programs on this particular topic, and at the end of it, they come to me and say, uh, well, you know, look, I mean, it's all very nice for, for other people, but me, I'm, I've always been shy, I'm introverted, I'm just not a people person, that's all, you know. And I understand that. I mean, obviously, there are some people for whom this is easy, and I can assure you that for those people, there are other aspects of it that are difficult. You know, maybe they're bad at arithmetic and they can't read financial statements. I don't know. But, um, you know, nobody has all the advantages. Nobody has all the disadvantages. And your particular disadvantage is that, uh, you know, you're not good with people. Fine. Okay, look, um, you know, when, when I was 14, um, I had a face that, uh, that could have been a museum exhibit for acne. Um, I, I spent the equivalent of, of a small country's GDP on pharmaceuticals to try and clear up my face. Um, you know, nobody told me that time would take care of it. But um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, if if, uh, if a footballer breaks a leg during a game, he doesn't walk around for the rest of his life saying, you know what, I'm just a broken-legged footballer. No, he gets fixed. And somehow or another there is this notion that we can fix our faces and we can do even cosmetic surgery and we can set broken limbs. But if somebody says, I'm not a people person, we somehow accept that as a permanent sentence, as if that is just an inviolable rule of nature that, well, I guess you're just not a people person. No, you change it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's totally doable. You know, will you necessarily become, um, um, you know, a, a, a television talk show host? No, you know, probably not. But you'll become much, much, much better with people than you are now. There's absolutely no reason to accept as if it's a given and that there's no such thing as change, this idea that, oh, well, you know, you're an introvert, you're not very good with people, that's all it is. But no, not at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, each and every one of us can improve in almost every area, and that area particularly is one that will not only enrich you um, materially to get over, but will actually en enrich you socially and spiritually as well. You know, there's a related concept, and I know where you lie on this as well, and that is 
that of being an optimist or a pessimist. People take the same kind of stand. Well, I'm just a pessimist. Yeah, well, right. You, you may see the glass as half full. I see it as half empty. You know, and then we have Stephen Covey, people like that come along and say, you ought to carry your sunshine inside you. And I've come close to being slapped by family members for my saying of that little phrase now and then. Well, it doesn't matter what it's doing outside. I carry my sunshine inside me. There again, I mean, I certainly believe that's something that we can learn how to see the bright side of things. Yeah. Do, so you, you think there as well, somebody could learn to be more optimistic. This is not just something. Oh, of course. It's absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital. There's, there's a famous Met Life study that shows that uh, in insurance sales, which is certainly one of, one of the very challenging areas of business, but uh, but an area with enormous potential for the uh, ambitious individual. Um, yes, trainees who arrived uh, with um, inadequate academic background, but scored very strong on optimism. Uh, outperformed by nearly double uh, people who lacked the optimism factor but uh, who possessed the academic background factor. There's no question how, how powerful and significant it is. In Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're learning the importance of emotional and spiritual quotient as compared to just intelligence quotient. Yes, exactly. Well, again, I want to just uh, recommend with my highest recommendation, your new resource, Ten Commandments to Achieve Financial Prosperity. I love the way that you're delivering it over a period of time in multiple ways so people can absorb it in the way that suits them best, but I know it's going to release people, people's financial prosperity and their, just their ability to carry out what God put us here to do. And that's not just about getting rich. You certainly convey that, but it's about releasing the very best that God has put in us. And so many people live lives of mediocrity and then try to justify it spiritually. I think they were missing what God really intended for us. I've got one last question that I want to ask you as well. And I don't know the answer to this, but I have heard through the grapevine that you are not fond of a song from a very famous movie that we all love. That being Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) <laughs> where he sings in his plaintive manner, if I were a rich man. Yes, that's right. I actually, I term that a uh, very anti-Semitic song, if I was a rich man, because uh, no Jew on earth that, uh, that had any self-respect would ever sing, if I was a rich man. He <laughs> sings when I'll be a rich man. <laughs> is that the caveat? That's all there is to it, yeah. There's no if about it. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So it's when. Well, that's a wonderful note to leave our readers with. It's not a matter of if, can I, it's when. And if you put these principles in place, move them through your head to your heart, financial prosperity is within reach for everybody. Yes, indeed. Ah, beautiful. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, thank you so much. I count you as a dear friend. I love to see your work continue to unfold. Thank you as very you... much. Likewise, it's oh. a privilege being with you, and I'm very much looking forward to getting together again in Nashville on my next visit. Yes, by all means, we'll do that. We'll break some thank bread you. together. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. 
I'm always excited about seeing people develop new resources. Yes, there's probably no new ideas in the world. As Mark Twain said, we just put them in a kaleidoscope and mix them up. But Rabbi Daniel Lappin has a way of unpacking scripture in a way that few people I've ever encountered are able to do. And I find so much similarity in people who are extremely successful and the principles that they're using being drawn from biblical principles anyway. So he puts those together. I'm delighted to recommend his new resource, the new 10 commandments for financial prosperity. And we've got links to that in the podcast notes. Go check it out. The videos, you can watch the videos. I'm not even sure how it all works, but watch the videos, take advantage of the resources anyway that'll help you. I know that his teaching has helped me dramatically being raised an old Mennonite kid where we really thought that we better stay away from money. The safest thing to do was to stay away. I've had to rethink a lot of that in order to be in business and to find ways to be a blessing to a lot more people. So it's changed my thinking. I think it can help you as well. I hope that it helps you in the way that it's helped me. So again, it's been a pleasure to do that interview today to interrupt our normal format a little bit, but I think it was well worth the time to think about this one issue that is so central to being successful in business and and define success in many ways for all of us, no matter what we're doing. Ultimately, it comes back to there has to be that money component. So thanks for being part of this group, again, of people who are creating or finding work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Today's a good example of that. Make it that in your own life. 